Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October 30th, 2015, and this is episode 1669 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday, 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 time for the Monster Show of the Week, though. It's a bit of a short one today because, well, I only had like three... Uh, answers from expert council members left to uh, clean out the slate, so to speak. So I've tossed in some calls for me since I didn't do a call show yesterday. So i got four calls I'm going to answer. Most of them are pretty short, too. So we should have a, a, a decent length show today. we got got uh, Paul Wheaton, John Pugliano on deck today, along with an answer from the illustrious Stephen Harris. So we'll have all that for you more in just a bit. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody who doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it. From the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between, you'll find it at Ready-Made Resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can? or by the case, they've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? 
got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1669 because the episode is 1669. I have the genius of Pascal on post-it notes. And I have Tong Ring Tang Pharmaceuticals and the Gods of Medicine. I'm going to read the genius of Pascal on post-it notes. Blaise Pascal has been a brilliant mathematician and a bit of a playboy, but when he lost control of his carriage and was sliding toward oblivion, he underwent a dramatic change of heart and mind. He was transformed. Thereafter, he pursued a pious life with the same vigor that he had pursued a self-indulgent one. As the mood would strike him, he would write down brief thoughts on scraps of paper. His intent was to create a defensive religion aimed at convincing a person such as the man he once was. He collected over 900 inspirations. The most recognizable is Pascal's Wager. The logic goes like this. It's always best to follow God's commandments because if God exists and you follow his commandments, you go to heaven. But if he doesn't exist and you say you have lived your life well and all you've lost is a freedom to engage in certain activities of dubious value. After Pascal dies, one of his friends tidies up Pascal's notes, has them published on the title Ponce, which means thoughts. Pascal's thoughts will remain in print until modern day. My take by Alex Shrugged. In 1968, a scientist at 3M was working on a super adhesive glue, but the sticky gooey invented could barely hang on anything. Dr. Spencer Silver had a sense that the goop must be useful for something, so he became an evangelist for the glue that just wouldn't hold. Back in those days, 3M believed in business bootlegging, the practice of looking the other way and letting researchers pursue their own blue sky projects on their own time because project managers don't have a box on their spreadsheets labeled Sudden Freakish Inspiration. HP had a similar policy at the time. After five years of looking for an application for his invention, Art Fry asked if he could use the glue on his bookmark so they would stop falling out of his hymnal. Everyone at the church loved it. After some marketing tests, they named the product Post-it Notes, and the rest is history. I'm going to talk real quick about Pascal's wager in the way that I think people like myself, who have spiritual and religious beliefs but are not of a revealed religion faith, um, view things like that. That's great for you. That, that's, that's exactly I think we feel about a lot of things that people who come at religion from a standpoint of an organized faith. Commandments, sacraments, requirements, whatever they are, that's great for you. And I don't begrudge you one bit for that. Um, and I think religion is a fine thing as long as it applies to those who willingly participate in it. I think the greatest tragedies in, in, in history that involve religion are every time any religion, no matter what it is, is seen as something to be hoisted upon others against their will. As just about any system of beliefs or anything is, uh, people should be able to voluntarily choose what to believe and what not to believe, who to associate with and who not to associate with. And what to do and what not to do until such time as they trample or infringe upon the rights of another. Until and Basically, I, I believe it works this way. Your rights to your body and your property 
extend to their furthest reaches until such time as they go into and interfere with someone else's property or body. So I can swing my fist as hard as I want until I try to punch you in the face, then we got a problem. And I think that many people in historical times and all the way up till now continue to try to hoist whatever it is of, of their religious beliefs or political beliefs upon others against their will, and that's where problems arise. As for the wager itself, it's something I've heard people tell me before. Well, see, if you do what I say, then, you know, and, and, and I'm right, then you go to heaven, and if you're, if you're wrong, you know, it, you know, if you're, how does it usually go? It's a little different now. Oh, yeah. If I'm right and you're wrong, then you're in deep trouble when you die. But if you're right and I'm wrong, then I'm fine when I die. That that's how you, you know that's that same wager put back. In other words, the Christian tells me if you if you don't follow my religion and I'm right, man, you're gonna have a hard day on Judgment Day. But if you're right, it doesn't really hurt me at all. Fine for you. And I also look at it this way: every single religion believes that they're right. That's why it has to be a personal choice. My take by Jack Spearco. Uh, with that, uh, let me remind you, you can help support the show and the work we do by joining the Member Support Brigade. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. That's all I'll say about that today. And let's go ahead and take the first question that I have for an expert council member today. And it's not even really a question. It's just our update from Paul Wheaton. We haven't heard from Paul for about three weeks, I guess. So a lot's probably going on up in the wilds of Montana at Wheaton Labs. Paul is one of the greatest innovators out there, I think, in the world of permaculture and sustainable energy. And he's always got something cool going on. So, Paul, tell us what's going on up there in the wilds of Montana. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton and Jocelyn Campbell from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Laboratories. Um, <laughs> there's a big glitch. We'll power through it. Gonna power through, right? So a lot has happened since our last update. I mean, we had the innovators event, um, but before I get into that, I, I just want to say, oh wow, the amount of misinformation about rocket mass heaters on the internet is profound. Um, uh, don't use metal on the inside. Um, uh, people are saying that conventional wood stoves are just as efficient. No, they're not. Oh, wow. Are they not? Uh, it's like, uh, uh, rocket mass heaters burn, uh, so much cleaner. And at the same time, it's like, uh, uh, how can they possibly be more efficient than 80% efficient? Are you claiming to have like 300% efficiency? And it's like, well, if you stop running your 80% efficient wood stove at 3% efficiency, this wouldn't be so easy. So it's like, no, rocket mass heaters are at least five times more efficient, if not ten times more efficient. And generally, we're seeing ten times more efficiency with a rocket mass heater over a conventional wood stove. And anyway, all right, so I could go on for hours about that. But let's get to the Innovators event. Yes, lots of rockety building. Lots of rockety building. <laughs> lots of, of stuff. But we got to start off with the electric vehicle exploding. Oh, gosh. Boom! Just one huge boom, and it's like, what was that? And then, fortunately, no one was around, but when we went there, it's like there's pieces all over the place, and it's like, okay, um, I could explain. We, we think we know what exactly happened, and, and basically the charge controller was bad, and um, uh, 
And it also points to proper battery maintenance. We have lots of electric vehicles, lots of conventional vehicles, lots of batteries yeah. to maintain. And and with different changes in people, um, no, that no, was that I, wasn't I it. paid a guy. He yeah. he billed me and said that he went to all the batteries and yeah, updated yeah. them. And it turned out that it was easy to send the invoice to me and have me pay it. But I didn't go check his work. I trusted him. And that was apparently an error on my part. So he was paid, but he didn't actually do it. So was it the charger or the batteries? I think it's it's a combination of both. But but we're low on time. Yeah. All right. Uh, first innovator, Peter Vandenberg, um, uh, came out here. He runs a board uh, called, uh, it's like Donkey32. you know, dot proboards.com, I think. Oh, but anyway, there's another forum out there. So it's not just permies.com. Permies.com doesn't have the only rocket mass heater forum on the internet. So he's a, he manages that and he came out. Um, <laughs> in fact, from just, across the ocean, just as soon as we'd wrapped up cleanup of the exploded, um, electric vehicle, getting all the acid out and trying to, you know, uh, uh, rescue the bat. Well, we couldn't rescue the batteries, but rescue the EV from the batteries that are spraying acid all over everything. Uh, like the the moment we've got that pretty much ra- wrapped up, uh, Peter tripped and her, um, cut his hand open. Yeah, and um, had to have stitches. And he's from Europe. He's um, from the Netherlands. Yeah, and and so I took him into the the hospital in Missoula uh, to get to get just get some stitches. And um, before we left, and everybody was telling him, "So sorry that you're about to experience the American healthcare system." <laughs> Compared to <laughs> and, Europe, and he's like baffled, doesn't know what's going on. And, and, and so I took him there and I apologized for the American healthcare system and I told him what was going to happen. Like, you know, it's, you, you got to pay for it, but they're not going to tell you how much to pay. <laughs> I got three hours to say about that whole thing, but no, moving no, along. No time. The first thing that he came up with was called, he called it the fat rabbit. So basically it's like, um, uh, he wanted, there's apparently there's a, a size of barrel that's used in Europe that's fairly common that we don't have here in the United States that's bigger than a 55 gallon drum. Uh, and it, we could get them here, but they would be crazy expensive, like $400. So instead, we just had one fabricated. And so now we've got this huge metal cylinder. And the idea was is that it's something where it's kind of – it's a batch box style rocket mass heater, and the mass is inside the barrel. Um, and so it's for use inside of a smaller space where you might not have the room to put in a full rocket mass heater. And that mass, the mass takes up a lot of room. Uh, for most rocket mass heaters, yeah. yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that's he called that the fat rabbit. Um, and then he made another one that that was like that, but it fit into a standard 55-gallon drum that was much smaller. And he calls that one Mini Mouse. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're lining up to to move. And Mini Mouse is very portable, not mm-hmm. you know uh, much more so than um, the fat rabbit. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are so basically he's he's working on innovations to go into uh, tiny homes or very right. small homes or maybe um, you know a small office or or something like that. And we have a couple cabins we might move those into here. Ernie did an Ernie Wisner did an amazing burn with a I want to say quartz barrel. So it's not actually a barrel, but it's this enormous barrel shaped thing that's made out of quartz so um which i always think of the stone quartz but what this is is transparent yeah it looks like like glass glass and so apparently this thing that we have that cost twenty thousand dollars brand new 
Holy moly, <laughs> I didn't know that. And and so we managed to get one used. Uh, and, and through connections through the permies.com empire, um, in fact, it was wow. Armin. Armin. Yeah. Uh, and then we got one. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, so so we we got video of the burn so you can see the Taurus. Right. Uh, as it's, the yeah. 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 And it's like it doesn't ha- doesn't last very long before it starts to, you know, get soot on it and it's it's over. But very uh, cool. Yeah. Erica Wisner uh, did a couple of wild things. So we've got all these very expensive materials for the innovators to use. And and Erica was like, we got these interesting kinds of, you know, she she saw this material and she's like, ooh, shiny. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a two-inch rocket mass heater, which as far as I know has never been done before. (laughs) And and, uh, so, so she did that. She also, her primary function was on this hot tub, which when she arrived, we didn't even have a hot tub. And so, um, uh, one of the guys, Weston, uh, managed to find, uh, a, a hot tub that was like, uh, one of the cedar, no, redwood, redwood right. ring right. hot tub things. Right. So then all the guys are putting all their time into making a, a, a skittable platform, uh, using timber framing techniques and, uh, getting, and so by the time, so, so, We've got all the stuff, but we haven't actually put the water into the tub yet. And it, so apparently Ernie and Eric are going to pop back by here in a little while and get some hot tub action going. <laughs> so um, right. that's that's still going on. She also made, but here's the fascinating thing in how she did it, is that she made um, kind of like, we, we've banned pocket rockets. It's a, it's a kind of like, a, it's not a rocket mass heater, but it's kind of like using rocket stove uh, philosophies to make this thing. But we've banned them here at Wheaton Labs because the metal on the inside burns out. And then that's mm. a violation of my standards. Yeah. Um, however, it's like, the idea was, is like, well, if you had a pocket rocket, you could just stick it into the hot tub and mm. and then it would heat it amazingly fast uh much cleaner et cetera et cetera et cetera all the things that we love with the rocket technology and um uh but of course it's banned so then it's like well how do we make a pocket rocket that doesn't burn out the metal and it's like well we use these ceramic materials that we have so she's got something that she's put together that is like um even tinier than Peter Vandenberg's mini mouse Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it'll it 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 is working awesome. But yeah, now she we just was very excited about that. So now it's like we've got this thing that's extremely tiny, can move around really easily. It can be part of the oh geez, we're almost out of time. I'm not even halfway through the list. <sighs> um, all right. Uh, Tim Barker made an outdoor cook stove, oven, and water heater. Um, and and this is um, he made something like this last year, but this is far. Uh, bigger, far yeah. prettier, far nicer. For an outdoor kitchen, portable kitchen, which is fantastic for events here. And yeah. yes, go ahead. Lassa Homes, uh, he built a beautiful uh, cook stove and butt warmer. So basically it's a rocket mass heater that will cook. Yeah. And then if you, if you put a bypass into it, which I believe it currently does not have the bypass in it, then you could cook in the summertime as well and not, you know, uh, heat up your home a bunch. Um, and so, but unfortunately where he built it is like, I, I, I didn't know what he was building. He, it was like, I never understood what he was building. And then he's like, no, oh, I'm going to move it later. So it'll, you know, like, oh, okay. Now it's kind of in the middle of like 
Yeah. We can't, it, and it's huge, of course. It's ma- it's a rocket mass. It's so massive. With bricks. With, yeah. We got, all um, right. It's gorgeous. But yeah. Volcano More. Road is done. Okay, so this is leaving the Innovators event. Yes. But while the Innovators event was going on, Evan was out there um, chipping away. So this so this base camp is like a, a large rock. This yeah. whole property is one giant rock with a 500 foot elevation on you know less than 20 acres. Yeah, and so it's like most of the property was unaccessible because um, it's. You know, just well. This is the Rocky Mountains. I mean, Jack, you were the, here. <laughs> the road, the road they had going up there was so steep in some places. It, when you took an EV up there, you felt like it was almost going to tip backwards on you. Yeah, and most yeah. of uh, a lot of our four wheel drive stuff could barely make it up there. Yeah, and uh, and then somebody did something on the road, like they started peeling out on the road. Now nothing can get up there, and it was like, well, should we the, anyway, we couldn't get materials up there. We so needed a new road. We needed a new road. So, um, and it's lots and lots of rock and, uh, we, so I've got all, oh, we're over. Oh, damn it. Okay. (laughs) Jack, I guess I got to leave out all the important stuff for next time. Uh, there's a bunch more to say. Uh, bye Jack. Is it just me or does Paul Wheaton seem to be just a little bit excited about rocket mass heaters? I think for all the cool stuff Paul does, I think he's found his passion in rocket mass heaters, huh? Uh, next up, I have a question for me. This is a calling question that I didn't answer yesterday, obviously. And uh, it's a question on Mint, so we'll listen to that, and I'll come back with my answer. Hey, Jack. Michigan Nimrod here. I'm in southwest Michigan, not too far from Lake Michigan, about 20 miles inland. Uh, we generally get uh, 60 to 80 inches of snow every year. Uh, outside looking at my little mint bed now, and I'm curious if... Uh, I should cover it in straw or just let it be. I'm actually looking at it thinking I should make some tea, but I don't know if that's good for a newly planted mint, mint plant, so I just wonder what you were thinking about that. So I got a mixture here of uh, you know, all kinds of mints, so I ain't going to listen. I was just curious what you thought and uh, appreciate your show and uh, hope to hear some of you. Thank you, sir. Well, the issue with the snow is really not a big deal. In fact, the snow being there as an insulative layer against the the, the earth is actually going to mitigate uh, cold damage to just about any root system. Uh, the the harshest winter environments are where you get these temperatures, you know, sub zero temperatures with exposed cold ground, and the more exposed, the worse. So if you had, and then so I'm going to get into the mint thing here in a second, but it doesn't really matter. Any perennial that's overwintering. The worst thing for it is that it's sitting there with bare dirt in in the cold. The, 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 so then, like, the next level that would be a little bit better, it's got some sparse vegetation around it. That would be better. Deep vegetation around it, even dead grass and things like that have just kind of gone to, like, being inert litter where you have, like, a high grass or high bushy herbaceous layer, and it kind of sort of dies or goes dormant or whatever, and it's sitting around this other perennial that would be next best. Taking it further is when we go in there with a nice thick layer of artificial mulch, put that on there. But if, if any of those things are true and you add to it a layer of snow, uh, it actually is protective of roots. It's only going to be so cold under the ground when you've got a foot of snow on top of it. That's why, you know, Native Americans from the, you know, north, Part of the, the country up in Alaska, uh, Inuit, Eskimo, however you want to say it, uh, build you know houses from snow, and they're actually warmer in the snow house than they are outside of the snow house. So 
you, you probably couldn't have your mint die if you tried. Unless you did something like, you know, poured some kind of herbicide or something on it like that, and it's so tough it still might survive. But there are some best practices that we can do to feed the soil during the winter and get it off to a really good kickstart coming into to spring so that we have the, this wonderful lush mint that we can get several cuttings from a year uh, before we uh, before we have it go dormant again. And that way we can get the most use out of it. So that'd be like first thing is you probably have a while yet before your first frost is going to you know knock it back. Go ahead and take cuttings from it. Go ahead and cut it, you know, until it's on about two inches from the ground right now. Take it all. Uh, or if you know you've got another three weeks, wait a little bit. But, you know, you, you could come up on a heavy frost really soon with where you are. Cut it. Hang it. Dry it. Use whatever you want to fresh and dry it. Put it in mason jars and you have it for the whole winter. Okay? That's step one. Step two, let's go ahead and give it some feed. Give it some compost Uh, give it some inoculum, whatever you have available, whether you have a fungal inoculant, maybe some uh, mushroom spawn if you have that. Usually that's harder to get this time of year, so unless you have it already. Compost, just a good, you know, a good layer of that on top of it. And then let's go ahead and mulch it with something. Straw would be a great mulch, a little bit of wood chips, whatever, and then just let it be. Because what you're going to do, and it, another thing you might want to do is give it just a slight sprinkle of some things to feed your microorganisms. Something like cottonseed meal or corn gluten, for instance, would be really great things to feed the microbes. And a little bit maybe uh, sugar. And that could either be plain old table sugar or you know dried molasses, dried horticultural molasses would be great. Or get some liquid horticultural molasses and give it a soaking in that. Uh, and you can do that after you mulch it so that it's not only in the soil, but it's actually impregnated into the mulch. And then let, let nature take its course. And what you'll find if you take that approach is not just that your mint survives the winter, but when it comes back next year, it's going to be vibrant and blowing and going like you've never seen before. And that's really great if you decide, I don't want to cut my mint several times a year. I want to go ahead and let it flower for pollinators because you'll get much, much more out of that as well. So, And that's anything that's a perennial herb that overwinters in your area, you do the same thing with. Mint probably needs it less. But remember, it's not just about mint. It's the whole community that's living in that space on your property. And any other perennials as well. These are some of your best practices to ensure that when they come out of winter dormancy, they do so with vigor and you get the most out of them in the next year. With that, let's go ahead and uh, take a question again for another one for an expert council member. This one comes from Scott in Kansas, and it's with this, this is, again, for John Pugliano. With the stock market being crap right now, what do you think about investing in municipal bonds? My IRA allows this purchase. If a municipal bond with a maturity of three years and a coupon rate of 3%, my understanding would be that this would be 3% per year for three years, correct? Thanks, Scott in Kansas. Uh, Mr. Pugliano, what say you on municipal bonds? Hello, Scott from Kansas. Thanks for your question about municipal bonds. Let's do a quick review for any TSP listeners that might not be familiar with what a municipal bond is. Municipal bonds are often called munis. And they're forms of government debt that are issued by something other than the federal government. So they're the preferred method for states and counties and cities to issue debt. Now, from an investor standpoint, municipal bonds are generally seen as appropriate for older investors, investors that maybe have a lower risk tolerance. They're looking for a guaranteed rate of return. 
And one of the better features of municipal bonds is that many of them are deferred from either state and or federal taxes. Now, not all of them are. You need to definitely check into that. But you'll see many older, higher income, higher net worth investors that particularly live in a state like California where there's a, a very high state income tax. They'll gravitate to municipal bonds for the fixed income portion of their, of their portfolio. So if you're someone in that category, then municipal bonds may be right for you. Now, Scott, something I do want to point out, you specifically mentioned in your question that you're thinking about doing this in your IRA. Now, your IRA is a tax-advantaged account, so there would really be no sense in your situation to invest in a state or federal tax-free municipal bond because when you do that, the yield on those bonds are lower because of that tax advantage they offer, right? It's just a mechanism of the free market. Because you're getting a bond that would qualify as a tax break, they pay you a lower interest rate for that privilege. Now, in your case, your money's already in an IRA, so you don't need that tax-free protection that you're giving up some of your premium for in the form of the yield. And then whenever you eventually take that money out of the IRA, you're going to be hit up with an ordinary income tax rate for taking it out of the IRA. When had that money been invested outside the IRA in a tax-free uh, municipal bond, you wouldn't have paid any tax on it anyways. So I'd encourage you to think through that tax situation if you are going to invest in a bond in an IRA, personally, I would do that in a very high-grade corporate bond that would pay a higher coupon rate than a tax-free municipal bond that has an equivalent rating. The other thing you need to consider is the risk factor. Now, I said that these are generally used for older people that want to rely on a, a guaranteed form of income that are seeking a low-risk investment. From a Wall Street perspective, municipal bonds are very safe. However, those of us in the TSP audience know that state and local governments are way overextended in their obligations, and we've seen cities like Stockton, California, and Detroit, Michigan, filing for bankruptcy. As I record this, Puerto Rico right now is uh, in the process of seeking bankruptcy protection. So although municipal bonds are generally regarded as being safe, like all investments, they do carry a risk, and for that reason, and particularly with the economic situation that we're currently in, I would only invest in municipal bonds that carry the highest quality rating. Investment grade quality is considered anything from a triple A to a double B. A triple A, a double A, something in that range would be the lowest quality that I would want to stoop to. Your discount broker is most likely going to be able to provide you with the rating of a particular bond. You can also look that up at places like Moody's or at Standard & Poor. The other thing that you might hear people talk about with with municipal bonds is whether they're a general obligation bond or whether they're a revenue bond. The old theory was that revenue bonds, which are bonds that are supported by specific fees, maybe like a usage fee that a, that a wastewater treatment facility would charge to the users or some type of an electrical co-op or something like that, that's where revenue bonds generate their income from. And the old argument for safety and security was that revenue bonds might be a little more risky than, than general obligation bonds because if people use the facilities of, of the water treatment plant or the, or the sewage treatment plant or some type of a, a toll road or something, if the usage goes down, then your revenue stream could be affected. Well, that is true, and I wouldn't dispute that, but what I would say is is that I wouldn't put any better consideration or risk factor on the general obligation bond 
Because as we've seen in places like Detroit, even though the general obligation bonds have the ability to impose and collect taxes, well, if you get in a situation like Detroit, where all your productive people move out of the city limits, then it doesn't matter what type of taxing authority the city has, you know, if you just can't get blood from a stone. In any case, I'd stick to that highest quality rating, a triple A rating, a double A rating, and then I would also use my common sense and my situational awareness to scrutinize that particular uh, city or state or municipality that I'm investing in, and I would avoid some of the more indebted states. Now, the other thing I want to point out in reference to your question is about the coupon rate. In your example, you ask about a municipal bond with a three-year maturity and a coupon rate of 3%. Yes, to answer your question, that would mean that that bond would pay 3% each year for three years. That's what the coupon rate is. That Generally, that is paid twice a year every six months. So again, in your example, a three-year maturity would mean that you'd receive six payments that would annualize out to 3% a year. So roughly every six months, you'd receive about 1.5% of the principal amount that you invested. And then at the end of that maturity date, three years in your example, you'd receive your principal back. The one thing I want to caution on is, is that I think you're just using that as an example with an arbitrary number because in today's low interest rate environment, I don't know of any municipal bonds that are short term, like a two or three year maturity, that are paying anything near 3%. In fact, right now I'm looking at the uh, quote system on Yahoo Finance, a five year triple A rated average uh, yield for a municipal bond is 1%. The average rate of return for two-year municipal bonds that are AAA rated are 36 basis points. Now, to get at the heart of your question, do I think that these are good investments? Well, my own personal opinion is that no, I don't think they are. And again, this is just my personal opinion. I'm not offering you any type of advice or recommendation. I'm just coming at this from the perspective of saying that, hey, if I've got to tie my money up for the next two years and all I'm being paid for it is 0.36% per year, I don't think that's a very good return for my money. And that same thing would be said for a five-year municipal bond. I don't want to tie my money up for five years and only be receiving 1% back. So for me personally, no, I would rather take my chances. I would personally rather keep my money in something like a money market fund where even though I'm receiving less than that 0.36% interest, at least I have the option that that money is very liquid and very readily accessible. So if stock market conditions change, I can take that money almost instantaneously out of the money market fund I can put that money to work by buying an individual stock or a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund. For me, again, just a personal decision, locking my money up for two or three or five years just to get that very, very small rate of return, it's just not worth it to me. I'd rather have the money in a more liquid form. The other thing I want to point out to the TSP listeners is that Scott has specifically asked about bonds and not bond funds. While right now I would be discouraged from investing in a bond, particularly if it has a maturity of more than just a couple years, well, I would be even less inclined to invest in a bond fund. I don't have time to explain all the ins and outs of it in this short segment. But what you have to remember is that if you own a physical bond, then if you hold it to maturity, you'll get all your principal back. On the other hand, if you own a bond fund, like an exchange-traded fund or a mutual fund, 
and interest rates start to rise, then that can drive down the price of the fund that you're in and you could lose the principal value of your investment. People don't understand that. They hear bonds and they think that their investment's safe. When you're in an environment like we are with historically low interest rates, knowing that at some point in time, eventually, interest rates will start to move up and your investment can deteriorate. So I would encourage people to avoid investing in any bond funds that have a maturity that are longer than, you know, one or two years. That's all I have time for in this segment. I will be providing Jack with a link to a podcast that I recorded over a year ago. And in that episode, I address, you know, the best places for you to, to park your savings, things uh, where I discuss the difference between 401ks and Roth IRAs. And I go into some detail talking about mutual funds and bond funds and then specifically that risk involved with owning a bond fund as opposed to the actual bond. So for those of you that are new or novice investors, this episode would be a good place for you to start, to start getting a basic understanding of how to save and then understanding some basic terminology that the industry uses. That's episode 17 of the Wellsteading Podcast. I'll get that link to Jack. And as always, I'd remind you if you'd like to hear more about my commentary on the stock market or my overall wealth building principles, please be sure and check out the Wellsteading Podcast. Scott from Kansas, thanks for the question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. I agree with John, and I, I want to make sure that I point one thing out. John obviously knows, but didn't really comment on, uh, just to make sure the person asking the question really did mean IRA. Because one of the things that the person said is, my IRA allows this. In most instances, an IRA pretty much allows the purchase and trading of any security at all, period, the end, infinity, that you would normally be able to trade as a United States citizen. So I want to make sure that the, the, the call or the question, the guy that asked the question realizes that you have really no limits with an IRA. And if your IRA does have some sort of weird limits or things that you're not allowed to do, what I seriously suggest you do is, Move that to a different uh, holding facility, different different management facility for that IRA. I mean, you can have an IRA and E-Trade. You can do anything you want with it. So uh, if you do have any restrictions there. Because my other thought was, well, maybe what he really meant was 401K. And you may be sitting there with a 401K right now looking at it and going, well, this municipal bond thing is here, and it's it, it maybe looks better than, than being in stocks. And... I would say then you probably, like most people who have 401ks, have seen the systematic removal of what John said he'd rather have his money in, which is a cash option, a money market account from 401ks. But what usually is there is a U.S. government bond fund, a federal bond fund. And I know that we don't like that the federal government can print money, but the truth is the federal government can put print money. And if you are stuck inside a 401k and your choices are to sit in municipal mutual funds right now that you do not want to be in, be into a municipal bond fund that is tied to a lot of cities and locations and geographies that maybe you don't really know, understand, or want anything to do with, or a U.S. federal government bond fund, I would go with the U.S. federal government bond fund. And generally, it's a short-term fund, quick turnover in these uh, 401k plans. So I wanted to add that. The other thing I want to add is I really don't think anybody belongs sitting in 
a generally diversified mutual fund right now because if that is you, you are probably, if you let this thing go through winter, going to get punched in the face. One of the key indicators that I look at to determine what the future is going to hold when they come out and release the quarterly numbers, and remember, quarter three numbers gets released in quarter four, and quarter four's number gets released in quarter one of the next year, is trucking. And U.S. freight trucking is down. It's down significantly. I'll put a link in today's show notes where you can read about this at, at jock.com. But when you see trucking go down, trucking is how all goods and services are moved throughout the United States. And things have not been exactly kicking ass to begin with. And what are we going to see when we come out with a quarterly report and the numbers that is key to the analysts on TV telling America we're headed for or we are in a recession, the GDP. Trucking is a main driver of GDP, not in how much trucking you know contributes directly with how much gross revenues are there in trucking, but everything that's on a truck goes somewhere to then be sold, resold, etc. And it is immune in many ways to things like online shopping. Because a lot of times when retail numbers are soft, they say things like, oh, well, you know, more people are buying from Amazon and eBay than ever before. So we're just moving from bricks and mortar to clicks and mortar, just like we've been doing it. No big deal. That stuff still has to move in a truck. 90% of it moves in a truck. When you see trucking go down, that means when the numbers for Q3 come out in Q4, there's going to be a decline. Uh, most of the time. And here's the big danger. Then everybody kind of holds it together through Christmas because, hey, Christmas, Black Friday, the retail is going to be super. And if consumer confidence is lost, you go into the first quarter of next year and in the doldrums of winter and in election year with uncertainty, it comes out the Q4 was a down year too. And they say, we are officially in a recession. Ah! And everybody starts screaming and you know doing what they did last time, right? Now it probably wouldn't be as bad as the 0809 unless some other some other agitating factor gets thrown on top of that. Like I don't know, a student level student loan bubble becoming a crisis or something like that. If it's just that, you know, it could be more like a 2012 2013 mini recession or worse. Um, but I don't see like any way that you see this year ending really really up. On top of that, the little dip we had uh, at, the be, you know, at the beginning of fall here, the stock market is almost fully recovered. If you held general diversified mutual funds through that, you should be in pretty good shape to move elsewhere. And I would get out of the way right now, mainly because even if I'm wrong about the downturn, as John and I have been saying for months now, there is no big Upside in 2015, it's not going to happen, so there's no reason to have your money at risk. You should be in stocks that you understand, individual stocks you understand that are resilient in these times or other types of investments. General diversified, just ride it through right now, is a bad place to be. You don't have to believe me, but if it turns out that I'm right, don't say that once again, Jack didn't warn you. With that, I have another calling question for me, this one on storing potatoes. Here we go. Hi, Jack. This is Wisteria, first-time caller from way up north in Vermont. 
Um, I am calling for the food storage um, question and answer. I was wondering what would be the best way to store potatoes in a um, cool, cold basement. Probably stays around 40 to 45 degrees during our winters. It's not technically a root cellar, but it does stay cool and kind of damp because it's an old farm basement. I'm also wondering if I could use a metal can with the holes. You know the metal cans you can get with the holes in them and layer it with newspaper between the potato layers. I can get local organic potatoes for way better than I can get them anywhere else, and I'd like to just put them up. Thanks. I'm not sure what you mean by metal pans with holes in them, but that would probably work. Um, here's what you should do when you store potatoes. So you, you, it doesn't sound like you're digging your own. You're getting local organic potatoes. Right now they're abundant. You can get a whole bunch of them. They're not going to be abundant soon. What is available, the price will go up. So you want to get them now while they're cheap and abundant and put them away until you get into next year. Makes sense. If you're digging them yourself, the first step is being very careful when you're digging them and trying not to damage them. If you're buying them, you want to go through them, and if you find any that have digs and marks in them where they've been scraped during harvest, put those aside and use those right away. Store those like you would ones you buy from the grocery store and keep them in the dark, etc., good airflow, and get them used up just like you do the ones you buy in the store. They're, they're your now potatoes because they have the least likelihood of making it through long term. The next thing is get yourself some trays or bins or something like that with some good airflow in them. Put your potatoes in them. Go ahead and put them down in your, your, you know, your, um, your cellar area. You can go ahead and do that right away. And cover them with like a, a blanket or a towel or something that blocks all light from them. And you want to let them sit like that um, for, I don't know, I'm not a potato guy, but I would say uh, a couple weeks. This is going to cure them. They're going to toughen up. Their skins are going to toughen up. And then you can use these metal cans or whatever you're talking about with holes in them. I don't, I'm not really sure what you mean by that. But generally, what I've always known to do is store them in cardboard boxes. Because cardboard breathes. And it also, it's still dark. Like The, the ones for like office documents work really good because they're rigid and they're strong. And... Kind of the best thing to do is put down a layer. Of, you know, you can do newspaper like you're saying, but shredded paper is better. Like you know, the stuff comes out of a paper shredder. Put down a layer of that. Put down a layer of potatoes. Cover them with that. Put down another layer of potatoes. Cover them with another layer of paper. Another layer of potatoes like that. Like you're making lasagna. Or the other thing that I've seen used a lot that that seems to work really well is sawdust. And and either of those is probably you know best. Now as far as Is there any problem storing them with an aerated metal container? Probably not. My grandmother used to store potatoes in what looked like like the old school produce boxes, right? Rough saw lumber, kind of just like, you know, something that people use like as, to put it aside as a little artifact now. And she always did hers in sawdust, and, and that worked great. And I would have to take the potatoes and let them, you know, cure and, and put them in the boxes and, and stick them down there for her. And she'd send me down there to get them and, and what have you. So... That's that's my experience with storing potatoes, but I'm not a potato guy, and they're one of the harder things to grow in, in north-central Texas. We're more inclined to grow something like sweet potatoes here, so 
That's the best answer I can give you on that one. Uh, with that, I have another question here. This one is for Stephen Harris. This one is on dealing with heating and cooling. And uh, it's basically, I live in southern Oklahoma in a house that's totally electric. Currently use window units to cool and space heaters to heat. I'll be making some upgrades to my home. Would like it to be more energy efficient. There's no natural gas available, but I'm willing to get propane. Should I get central heat and air? And if so, what type? Thanks, Adam. Okay, Steve, what say you on this one? Adam in southern Oklahoma. This is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. Wow. Okay. You're in southern Oklahoma, so you really don't have much of a, of a, uh, winter season. You don't have much of a heating load down there that you need. But when it gets cold, it gets cold and you want to be warm. Using electric heaters, uh, in a room is not a very good idea economically or thermally. An electric space heater, the most it can draw from your wall is about 1,500 watts, and 1,500 watts equates to about 5,000 BTUs. So you're getting 5,000 BTUs per heater, per circuit in your house, and at $0.10 a kilowatt hour, you're paying about $0.15 per hour to run each space heater. Now, a natural gas or propane furnace for your house the smallest one you would get would be around 40,000 BTUs. So you'd have to have eight full circuits and eight space heaters going to equal this. And that would be, uh, a, that'd be a buck 20 an hour running, uh, those heaters. So the price for electric heat can add up quickly, let alone, uh, it takes up an entire circuit in your house because of the, uh, it's drawing 1500 watts. It's drawing about 15 amps. So what I would recommend to you is get a propane furnace for the house and shop around and find a good one and you know you're not in a hurry so you can dicker with price and you can get it at the right time of the year right now since it's fall they're kind of busy but since it's still warm down there in Oklahoma you might be able to get it uh, at a good price because it's kind of still off season. And like I said, you're not in a hurry. If you, your furnace is broken and you have them come over, they'll rape you in, in price. If you got your time and you can schedule things with them, you'll get a good price. I've replaced our furnace in our house. And I recommend you get one of the higher efficiency furnaces. They're just more common today. And they vent out a PVC pipe to the outside world, and they don't require a chimney. Um, you don't really need the highest efficiency one down there in Oklahoma, but you know a 95 to 98% efficient furnace would do good. Shop around, get prices. Now, AC. And that's a big one. The thing about central air conditioning is it's very convenient. It just cools the entire house. It runs on your one thermostat. You can have it on a timer. You can set it to not be on during the day and to come on an hour before you come home from work and cool the house down. Uh, it's very convenient from that point of view. However, having a window AC unit in every room or the rooms that you use and only cooling the room that you're in is the most economical and energy smart way to go. So you leave it off in the bedroom, you go and you turn it on a good hour before you go to bed and you cool down the bedroom. 
And then you go back to your uh, living room where you got an AC unit running and you're using that to cool the, the, the living room and you turn that off at night and it's not running. So, I mean, cooling and heating the room that you're in is the, the smartest way to go financially and thermally. However, if this is a pain in the rear end for you, I would just go ahead and get a central AC unit. And keep in mind, a furnace plus installation is going to be $2,000 or more or less, depending upon the size of your house. And an AC unit can be around $1,800 to $2,000 to be installed along with the furnace on top of the furnace price. So that's my best advice for you, what you're doing. I would say since you're not in a hurry, shop around and get good prices. And it being we're going in the wintertime, it's going to be off-season for AC units. And if you want to get one installed, they're going to give it to you at a good price. At the same time they install the furnace, you might as well go ahead and go for it. If not, also you got to have duct work in your house. If you don't have duct work installed, that can increase the price and or you might not be compatible with having uh, a furnace in your house. So I don't know if you got duct work. This is Steve Harris for the extra panel. Hey guys, I'm going away for a week. I'll be gone uh, from no, like November 1st through the 7th. So from now, the 29th, to the 8th of November, I have a sale for you. My famous battery bank videos that you've all heard about, uh, four and a half hours of HD video is on sale. Normally $34.95 is on sale for you for $24.95 and $19.95 for MSB members. I've not had a discount on this since I made it in November of 2012, so come and get it. If you want it, it's at battery, B-A-T-T-E-R-Y, 1234.com. It says $34.95 on the page, so it's kind of like a secret sale. If you click on the Buy Now button, it'll come up in your shopping cart as $24.95 or $19.95, depending upon if you're an MSB member or not, which is a good reason to join MSB. So thank you, guys. I'll talk to you in two weeks. Bye. All right, next up, uh, we've got a caller with a question for me about dogs. I'll do my best with it. Here we go. Hey, Jack, it's Greg. Uh, first time I've uh, been listening for a little bit. First time caller. I got a question for you about dogs. So I currently have a black mouth cur and a black lab. My question is for homestead protection, family protection, what are your recommendations, feelings for not only breeds, but as well as training? Uh, I've been working with a trainer now for almost a year uh, on the black mouth, and she has been fantastic. And I just want to just kind of hear your feelings on what you think about breeds. Obviously, certain breeds are more adaptable to that type of thing than others. Um, I'm not a big believer in certain breeds are aggressive or not aggressive. Dogs are what their environment presents to them, in my opinion. But I'm just curious what you think about as far as best breeds for homestead protection, family protection, and uh, training. So I appreciate your answer, and I love the show. Keep it up, buddy. Thanks. Uh, let's start out with, you know, the breed doesn't tell you that the dog's aggressive. It's a matter of their upbringing. To a degree, that's true. To a degree, that's true. Um, and some dogs are aggressive in breeds that are not normally considered aggressive, and some dogs are non-aggressive in breeds that aren't considered aggressive. 
And that's two things. It is upbringing. It is training. But what we're talking about here is inherent aggression and then properly channeled inherent aggression. So what I mean by that is there's dogs when I say they're not aggressive. I don't mean that they don't hurt little kids. I don't mean that they're not good, you know, that they're good family dogs and kids can play with them and they don't get all mean. I don't mean that they can't be controlled. I mean, there's dogs that don't have a lot of aggression in them. They'll bark when they think something's wrong and all, but when it comes down to it, when the rubber meets the road, they don't have the aggression, and in some cases, maybe the better word is the courage to engage fully in a, in a in you know a, a defense of of home and property. I've seen dogs that are very big dogs that'll run after an animal, a wild animal, but if that wild animal turns on it, they won't they won't commit an attack. Or if they do catch it, they really don't have that final tenacity to kind of finish it off. And sometimes if they haven't learned yet, they don't really know what to do, and they think they're playing, don't realize that, that you know something as simple as a squirrel can bite back. Uh, or sometimes they just don't have it. And, and that's not just a breed thing. So I think part of what we have to do when we're selecting a dog is not just say, well, I want a Rottweiler. Okay, so that'd be an example of a fantastic dog for home defense. Uh, a well-trained, well-disciplined, good bloodline, non-hyper-aggressive. So the dog that has that natural innate aggression to defend its pack, but doesn't confuse that with being aggressive toward other things. Rottweiler, one of the best there is. You can still have a Rottweiler that just doesn't have the courage commit through it. Sometimes they can be trained past and sometimes they can't. So when you're looking at a pup, you want a pup that's got some natural outgoing attitude toward it. Not one that's really, really timid. Unless you're willing to do the work to bring that dog along or if that's not what you're looking for, then that's the dog for you. Okay, so let's just start with that. Okay, the next thing is what breed? Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's as critical as people think it is. Let's talk about breeds that would be good for home protection and defense. Um, German Shepherds, Rottweilers, Doberman Pinsers, Blackmouth Cur, uh, various forms of Bulldog, the American Bulldog, uh, Pitbull, especially Pitbull crossbreeds uh, with proper training, uh, Mastiffs, uh, Argentinian Dogo. I could just keep going, right? Now, it, it tends to be that there's certain dogs that aren't good for this. So it's not so much like what is, it's more like, well, what is it? Well, really small dogs just don't have the power. Okay, then certain dogs are, are just kind of too inherently friendly. You mentioned you have a black lab. There's a lot of, people don't realize there's a lot of bites by black labs and other Labradors and Golden Retrievers. There's more bites uh, sent to emergency rooms from those dogs than people would tend to ex you know expect because they're considered such friendly dogs. Well, it's because so many people own them, and all dogs bite. It's just a matter of how, when, and how hard. But So when I say that they're not the best defensive dogs, a lab or a gold retriever or something, it's generally because they don't have that tenacity once they, once they do engage. It's like a bite and a release type of thing. They won't really you know, engage the intruder. Okay. So now we also have to think about the psychology of the intruder. The first thing we need to understand with any dog is if the intruder is armed, the dog is probably dead. Because if, you, if a dog attacks me and I'm armed, I'm just going to shoot it. And unlike a human being who can recognize a gun and take uh, countermeasures, the dog, if it's properly trained, is fearless and will go right into the barrel of the gun. 
So unless the dog, you know, gets an ankle or something like that, is working as a pair or is working with its trainer, uh, it, it, it's, it's a target and it's a pretty easy one to take out. We have to accept that when we put a dog into this role. That you're asking a dog to risk its life and it will. And if it's properly trained, it will and it will do so without question. The dog that's probably somewhat of an exception to that. If they, if you don't get a good, solid kill shot on an Argentinian Dogo, the dog will probably tear your throat out before you get a second shot out. Now, the problem with that is that dog, to me, is so good at what it does. It's like a weaponized dog. It, it, it's not that I would sell, tell somebody you shouldn't have one. I'd say the training has to be really, really, really good, and you have to be willing to do the work with the dog. And they are not a dog that's happy generally in urban environments. They're a dog bred for hunting, to be out in the plains in Argentina hunting boars. Okay, that's what they're that's what they're for. This is a dog that I, I've seen video of these dogs opened up by a boar, and I see the 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 owner take the dog and put the dog's intestines back in the side of the dog, take out a needle and thread, and sew the dog up with no anesthetic, and the dog just sits there, doesn't even respond to it. These dogs are tough, and they're amazing in what they're able to do. I mean, it's it's incredible uh, how powerful these dogs are. And, and I would say the same thing with a pit bull and pit bull mix. Like we have a pit bull. You know, and um, or a pit bull mix, really. And there's times where we really worry about him with people through the fence because people are stupid. And it seems like no matter how hard you tell them, don't mess with the dog through the fence, they try to pet the dog through the fence. Especially people that have been on the property before and the dog's accepted them, they don't get it. When you're outside the fence, you are off the property. You do not belong on the property unless you're introduced. So you have to understand when you're training a dog to be defensive that – They don't have an off switch unless you're there to throw it. Okay. The next thing is the off switch has to work. You have to be willing to work with your dog. Charlie's about to get some retraining. His electric collar's coming back out. We probably won't have to electrocute him. All he probably needs is a couple of vibrations. But he's starting to not accept his off switch when there's somebody on the other side of the gate. You tell him no. He stays up. The ass hair stays up on end. So... That's another thing, too. Anytime you're willing to make a dog aggressive enough to bite somebody because it doesn't belong somewhere or it's invading or it's it's a person that's attacking or breaking in a home, there's always the potential for the person you don't want to be bit to be bit. So you, you need to make sure you have the training solid. And sometimes the training has to be redone. The dog has to be continuously worked with. Now, the, the, the reality is, is you have one of the best dogs in the world for this. You really do. The blackmouth cur is a dog that's used by hunters in the United States to hunt boar and bear. Any animal that can stand its own with boar and bear and tear, and tear coyotes in half is a pretty good dog, pretty tough dog. The cur is also really a mongrel. I mean, at this point, it's really a recognized breed. But when it comes down to it, the cur is a mongrel. It's an old mongrel. originated in the southeastern and, and, and uh, eastern central United States. As a, as a dog that was basically a cattle dog, the kid on the farm's best friend, and a hunting dog all in one. A dog that could hunt rabbits and squirrels, let the kid climb on its back, protect the cows, move the cows, and would tear the ass out of anything that didn't belong on the farm. And, and it makes it almost one of the most ideal dogs that a homesteader or farmsteader could own. And they have the courage and the natural aggression 
but they don't usually have like dog psychosis. There's some dogs that are, have almost a psychosis with with attacking a person once they've determined that that person is a danger. Where a cur is is more likely it'll tear someone up, but it's not likely to end up pulling its throat out, which is something you can get into if there's no one there to stop it. With even dogs that don't have that much of a reputation for that, but don't really have the power to do it, like Rottweilers. All right, so I'd say in all of these situations you have to use caution, and what you're doing is perfect because you're getting training for the dog from a professional. But let's go back to the psychology of the intruder. If the psychology of the intruder is I have a gun, I'm going to go in and kill these people. Again, the dog will give you warning, but that said, they're going to shoot the dog. Fortunately for us, that's not the psychology of most intruders. Most intruders want to get onto a property to steal something, to take something. And when they hurt somebody, it's generally because they happen to be there. They're, they're actually trying to avoid that. And, and their, their tactic is to be secretive, to be undetected. So any dog that barks blows that. So even a little yippy-yappy dog that can't really be a good attack dog is good for that purpose. The other thing they, 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 they are going to think is, I don't want to get bit. I don't want to get bit. And if you have a great big, you know, German Shepherd or Pyrenees or whatever running around, even if it's not a dog that has the courage to commit, they don't know that. They don't know that. My neighbor's got three big German Shepherds bouncing around over there. Those dogs bark and bark and bark and bark, and a total stranger could jump over the fence and I'll run up to them and bark at them. They won't bite them. They just won't. They won't commit. They just won't do it. I don't think anybody's going in there anyway. How do you know that, right? Okay, you know, that's what you got to think. How, how would you know that? When you see dogs like that, you have to think to yourself, every time you've been somewhere, even when you're invited somewhere, if you go somewhere and there's a fenced-in area, you got to go through that fence to get to the house, and there's some dogs in there, and they're big dogs, and they're barking at you, you're not going in there. You're just not because you don't want to get bit. So also understand the psychology of the intruder is if the dog simply appears aggressive and large. And specifically, this is where certain breeds do make sense to repel intruders. When intruders see something like a Rottweiler or they see something like a German Shepherd, they're thinking, oh, this dog's going to bite me. Because generally, those are the types of breeds that are both highly recognizable and dogs that are trained to defend property. So... All of that kind of plays together. So when you have a German Shepherd that will commit, that does have the training, that does have the off switch, that does have the discipline, and he's aggressive, and he's loud, and he's seen, it's like it's like Teddy Roosevelt, right? Speak softly and carry a big stick. If the big stick is a known, it's very unlikely that you'll have to use it. And that's what I want most out of my dogs when it comes to people. I want the people to stay away They don't belong here because they just assume the dog's going to bite them. The fact they happen to be right is irrelevant, okay, unless they come over the fence. It's irrelevant. The other thing I want for my dogs is I want my dogs to be aggressive toward any animal on my property that doesn't belong on my property. I don't care if it's a blue heron that landed down by the, by the pond to eat my fish. I don't care if it's a stray cat that came over here to mess with my other cats. I don't care what it is. If it's on my property and they haven't been taught, leave it alone. And that's what we teach them. The ducks belong here. You don't mess with them. And the ducks can run right past them, and they don't even care. right? If it's anything else, I want it gone. 
And it's pretty much like a standing order. I'll tell you when to leave something alone. Otherwise, chase it, bark at it, get rid of it. And my dogs probably provide better security for things like raccoons and foxes. We never have predator losses. Even though the dogs are not out there, like livestock guardian dogs 24-7, they're out there enough. There's smells here. There's sounds here. Anything that gets close when they are out there gets engaged and chased away. We just don't have any problems. And to me, protection is not just protection from, you know, two-legged varmints, but four-legged ones as well. Anyway, with that, it went kind of long, but it's one of those subjects I really like talking about. I got one more today, I think. Yes, I do. This is a question on a mushroom lease. I've never heard of this before, but I do have some thoughts on it. Hello, Jack. This is Scott, Missouri. I have a guy who is uh, interested in cultivating and selling uh, mushrooms on some land that I have that I currently don't farm. Uh, he would come in and, and, you know, inoculate the forest edges and things and, and, and grow with mushrooms and, and sell those. And I wonder what kind of financial relationship he and I should have. I don't really want to do a, a percentage thing. I think that could lead to a lot of trouble um, and mistrust or whatever. So I wanted to, uh, you know, what sort of, I guess it would almost be like a lease you know, to have the rights to come on and, and, you know, access the property and all that good stuff. But wondered what you would recommend in terms of a uh, contractual and uh, pricing structure, I guess, uh, relationship uh, that he and I might might uh, might put together. So, anyway, I uh, appreciate your thoughts uh, in advance and look forward to hearing those. Thanks. Bye. Um, I'll tell you what. First of all, I completely agree with not doing a percentage thing. Uh, if he washes out, it shouldn't be your problem, period. Um, it just shouldn't. If he doesn't make a go of it, he, you've still given him uh, access to the land. You've done everything on your obligation. Whatever your lease requirement is, you should be compensated for it. And it's up to him to figure out, hey, this isn't working, and uh, terminate the lease by whatever uh, mechanism you guys have in place for how that happens. So there's that. Um And then, this is for mushrooms, it's unusual. I've, I've never really heard of such a thing. I have no idea how much space you really need to do that because people are doing it in pretty small spaces. So it may just be that you have a lot of stumps and things that make sense and you have a great environment for this and what have you. So that's all good and well. Um, I don't think it really matters if he wants to lease it to graze cattle or grow mushrooms or do anything other than, you know, if he wants to lease it to cook meth or something that's going to get you in trouble with the law, that's a problem. Otherwise, you're leasing it to him for agricultural purposes. That's like basic agricultural lease. So one of the first things you could do is see if your local ag extension office or anything, county extension office, has a, a, a kind of a template for such things to start off with because the big thing you need is a contract. And it doesn't need to be written by a lawyer. It doesn't have to have a bunch of legalese. And in fact, it's better than it, that it doesn't. What it needs to do is spell out very clearly what he gets, what his access is, including if you're going to say, well, you have access to the property, you know, Monday through Friday from eight to five if, during business hours, basically, or you have unfettered access to the property, or you can go to the property anytime you want, but I need to be notified by text. Whatever it is you want to do, so that you know somebody's there, when somebody's there, whatever. Um, or, you know, if you need access to the property at times or hours other than, then I need to be notified of that or, or what have you. Um, and what he is allowed to use on the property and what he must self-provide. 
So it's pretty important that this all be spelled out. And that you guys sit down and just, you say to me, how would you do this? So you don't tell him what he can and can't do in the beginning, right? Well, you just let him explain to you everything he wants to use, how he wants to use it. What I would just say, explain to me the process that you want to initiate and what you want to use on my property, what areas of my property you want to use, and start me out from the first day you show up until you're getting harvest. What's that look like? And when he spells that out, assuming you're okay with everything, that's what you put into the contract. So he doesn't feel like you're dictating this stuff to him. You're just making sure, hey, this is what we agreed to. I do this with friends when we have a business agreement. Okay, We have contracts. Not so much so that we can protect ourselves individually, but so we can protect our relationship. So when I say, well, what you said was, and then the other party says, well, no, what you said was, we say, hold on. We get the contract out, and we look and say, what does the contract say? And the contract says, here's the way it is. And then if we want to change that and we mutually agree to it, we can alter the contract. But if one person stands on something and, it, and the contract says you're wrong, then you're wrong. If one person says something and the contract says you're right, you're right. And it avoids so much animosity, so much of any kind of problem. In fact, usually it never comes up because the person's like, I know that I'm not supposed to have to do this. But instead of telling you what they do is they go to the contract and they go, I knew it. He's wrong. And then they go, hey, do you remember in our contract where it says, and you pull out and go, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Or they find it and they go, dang it, I'm wrong. It never even comes up. you got to have a contract. One of the most important things on the contract is duration of the contract and ability of each party to terminate the contract. And what happens If that is the case, for instance, if he was just going to cut up a bunch of logs and stack them and set them and do things with them and you decided this isn't working and he said, fine, it would make sense that he could pull a truck in there, give a certain amount of time, load all those logs up and find some place to go with them. If he's inoculating stumps that are in the ground and you throw him out, now what? Do you owe him something? Maybe you do. This needs to be spelled out. Because if you do that, he's going to say, well, I've got X amount of hours and X amount of material tied up in a way that I can't remove from your property. So you're terminating the lease. I've met my obligations. I have a harvest coming you're not letting me have. You're taking my property. We agreed that I could use your property, and that's why I've put my property there. So you need to have, what happens if it's just not working out? How does that work out? right? Is there a percentage of buyout in that? See, and you, you might start thinking, oh, I don't know anything, I don't want to do this. right? But you, you know, the, 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 the key is, the guy that wants to grow mushrooms in stumps or logs, it's probably not going to be a problem. But I mean, in your contract, you know, things like, can he store anything on the, on the property at all? If so, what and what not? Because what you don't want them storing on the property are bags of garbage, right? So just, you know, and, and, and I usually write my letters of agreement or memorandums of understanding with things like this. If one party has a grievance, they're required to notify the other party in writing, and both parties are required to negotiate in good faith to resolve the issue for a period of at least 30 days. And then if the grievance cannot be solved within that period, and you can't come to a mutual solution, or during that 30-day period, one of the parties says, piss off. I'm, I'm doing what I want. So they, they refuse to negotiate in good faith. 
then the first step is non-binding arbitration. And non-binding arbitration could be expensive or even free. Non-binding arbitration just means the two of you find anybody that you can both agree on to be, un, be fair and impartial who will listen to both of you and make a recommendation. Okay? I don't write this right into the contract. And you have to go to a non-binding arbitrator before you go any further by your contract. Because this just solves so many problems. So it could be that you and me have a problem, and we both know a guy named Dave, and Dave's kind of a stand-up guy. And Dave likes both of us. Or Dave's a stand-up guy that we know of, but Dave doesn't really care about either one of us. We say, hey, Dave, would you be an arbitrator for us? And Dave says, sure. So we go to Dave, and I say, Dave, this is my take. This is our contract. This is what's going on. This is what I want done. And he doesn't agree. And then you say, well, Dave, this is our contract. This is what's going on. Here's why I don't agree, and here's what I think should be done. And Dave says, let me think about this. And within 24 hours, Dave comes back and says, this is a recommendation I have for the two of you to solve your problem. And then we look at that. And right in the contract I put, we have to take at least 48 hours. If we don't, if we don't both go, you know what, that makes sense, fine, shake hands, let's, let's write that up, let's agree to it, and let's move on. If we don't have that immediate reaction, like we, didn't, we don't both go, Dave, you're a really wise guy. We're like, if we still disagree, we have to think about it for 48 hours. Then we have to come back. Then we discuss it. We discuss it and see if we can resolve issues. If we cannot, and if it's going to go to a legal situation, then we go to a private binding arbitrator. And that is like a private court. And you'll, you know what? You write a contract like that, you'll never get there. And I also put in my contracts, if we go to bonding arbitration and there's an expense, the arbitrator determines who is responsible for what portion of the expense. You're both a bunch of idiots. We shouldn't have even had to be involved in this. You both pay your own fees. Or you're wrong, you pay the full fee. And that's the end of it. That might be a bit involved for your mushroom guy. I saw I write my contracts. And I have never had to go there. I have never had to go there with anybody. I've never even had to go to private arbitration, um, a, you know, non-binding. And I'll tell you why. When you sit down as men or humans, as adults, because women are involved in this too, as adult human beings, you look each other in the eye and you know that's the path you're going to have to take. Neither one of you wants that. So what ends up happening is you say, okay, let's work this out. And if you realize, like, we just shouldn't be working together anymore, then the two of you say, okay, how can we, how can we sever this without harming each other? I almost think this would be a good formula for how we handle property and custody disputes with marriage instead of the family court system that destroys families and extorts both partners for their time, their energy, and their money and destroys the relationships that they have left with each other, even after divorce, and destroys the relationships with children. It's almost like this whole private arbitration system could be used to solve the majority of conflicts between individuals if it were given a chance. In many instances, it's never given a chance. But when you enter into any private contract, any private agreement with anybody, you always have the opportunity to agree to that from the beginning. And I think you'll find if you do it, whether it's leasing land, whether it's a business venture together, whether it's renting a, a house, 
no matter what it is, whether including a bond of matrimony, if you take this approach, most of the time, reasonable, cool heads prevail, especially if you require cooling off periods and a third-party voice that's mutually agreed upon. Just my thoughts on that. With that, I'm ready to wrap up today. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I know we were kind of short in duration with expert council members only having three. Hope you enjoyed my answers. Hope you enjoy your weekend as we head off to a wet weekend here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I hope you're getting weather that's what you need and what you want. It's, this is not what I want right now. This weather is not what I want. It is what we need. We had a five-month drought. And it's actually good to have this rain now and everything's starting to green up uh, before we go into the dormancy of winter, giving it time to get those roots down, feed those soil organisms through the winter. But I do hope you enjoy your weekend. And uh, today's ending song is, you know, it's just appropriate for today. I woke up to darkness, thunder and lightning and rain, and it's also a weekend and you want to feel good and enjoy your weekend. So I'm going to play for you a really cool, old, feel-good song by Eddie Rabbit. I love a rainy night. It's also my grandson Braylon's favorite song. And If I want to feel good, all I got to do is put that on and watch that little kid dance. And it really brightens up my day. Even though the song's about rain, I hope it brightens up your weekend. And uh, please enjoy those rainy nights when you have them. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Well, I love a rainy night, I love a rainy night I love to hear the thunder, watch the lightning when it lights up the sky You know it makes me feel good Well, I love a rainy night, it's such a beautiful sight I love to feel the rain on my face, taste the rain on my legs In the moonlight shadow Showers wash all my cares away I wake up to a sunny day Cause I love a rainy night Yeah, I love a rainy night Well, I love a rainy night Well, I love a rainy night Ooh, ooh Well, I love a rainy night I love a rainy night I love to hear the thunder Watch the lightning When it lights up the sky You know it makes me feel good Well, I love a rainy night It's such a beautiful sight I love to feel the rain on my face Taste the rain on my lips In the moonlight shadows Puts a song in this heart of mine Puts a smile on my face every time Cause I love a rainy night Yeah, I love a rainy night Oh, I love a rainy night Well, I love a rainy night Cause I love a rainy night Yeah, I love a rainy night